This week on The Function Room, episode 25, Crime Numbers. A little bit about the maths of criminology with Ian Marder, Assistant Professor of Criminology at Maynooth University. We talk about statistics and randomised control studies, bias and how crime always seems worse than it actually is, why you should get on with your neighbours, how to build the ideal justice system and, crucially, because I forgot to ask in the interview itself, what is criminology? So criminology is what we call an applied social science and that means that it's all of the disciplines in the social sciences and the humanities, law, sociology, politics, economics, geography, uh, philosophy, history, applied to the issues of crime and criminal justice. Thanks for what's happening me that, Ian. Now, one very important question. Apart from the fact that your surname is only one letter away from a serious criminal offence, how does one get into criminology? Uh, well, you're not the first person to tell me that. In, in prisons, they're happy to tell me that. In the courtroom, uh, pr- pretty much everywhere I go. No, but I mean, I, I study criminology and criminal justice at undergrad. I've always been interested in, in social sciences, in sociology, and you know, particularly in applied work in this area. So I see research and you know policy work and so on in criminal justice as a way to translate what we know from social science research into social policies into the work of the public sector of the third sector and you know hopefully through that we can actually improve the safety of society we can improve outcomes for people meet people's needs better and improve equality uh, so it you approach it from a sociological sense and it wasn't through watching TV shows as a child that you get hooked in that kind of thing. It's, it's an, it was an equality question. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, criminology is, is the anti-true crime. You know, it's, it's truer than true crime, right? Like what true crime does is it hooks people in on emotion. It, you know, it focuses on anomalies in ways that make people think that things are extremely rare or extremely common. You know, it, it, it mystifies rather than clarifies the true nature of crime in society and indeed the workings and impact of the criminal justice system. And I mean, you know, in fictitious stuff, uh, the person goes to prison and that's usually the end of the program. Whoops, well, that's all done now. The person's in prison. And of course, the reality is that almost everyone who goes to prison comes out at some point. So, you know, how would how would you respond to crime if the reality was that someone who was arrested or committed a crime or uh, went to prison would, might be your neighbor in the future? Like, that's the way we need to look at it, is to to, to recognize the bigger picture around these issues. It's funny you should mention that. It's a thing that occurs to me quite often when I think about uh, that bit of me that gets vigilante in my brain every so often is based entirely on consuming pop culture where the hero walks away after resolving the situation uh, with emotion and overwhelming personality and probably fists. And then that is that is the end of it. There is There is no consequences. Whereas I think about like, you can't get into a row with your neighbor because you're just going to be neighbors for the next 30 years. So long form, long term, longitudinal study, that is the key to criminology. Is that right? Definitely. And I mean, it's funny you mentioned the neighbor thing there as well, because like if you look at statistics on 
who calls the police about what, a huge amount of stuff that the police have to deal with is neighbors fighting with each other. And like, if you're in a conflict with your neighbor, that can play an absolutely enormous role in having a negative impact on your life. And yet, you know, when we think about crime and police, like we think about policing, we think they're running after someone with a knife who's a bad guy and they know they're a bad guy. And real life just isn't like that. You know, we know from statistics that, for example, the overwhelming majority of people commit a crime at some point in their life. And likewise, most people are a victim of crime at some point in their life. So, you know, in criminology, you can't get into the drama of good and evil, you know, right and wrong, because it's all just a matter of points of view in specific cases. Like, what what do we do with the fact that almost everyone commits a crime and almost everyone is a victim of crime? And yet our criminal justice system is set up in such a way as to draw really sharp distinctions between, you know, you're a criminal, this type of person is a criminal, you're a victim. You know, that means that we do this, this and this for or with or to you. And, you know, all of these uh, falsehoods are just, you know, perpetuated further by fictional and purportedly non-fictional media. And there's no better place to cut through emotion and points of view than a maths podcast. So you're very welcome to the function (laughs) room. Uh, I, I have you on because, you know, it strikes me that this is one of those areas that statistics what actually happens versus our perception and how we feel about whether we feel safe or whether we feel protected, uh, that maths obviously has a role to play. Uh, Can you tell me, when it comes to criminology, where does maths and maths practice come in? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of criminological research, we divide that as we do with most social sciences into broadly two forms of research, the quantitative and the qualitative. And the quantitative is anything where your data are numbers and the qualitative is anything where your data are, you know, words or observations or those kinds of things. So the, the mathematical analysis takes place in quantitative research. So for example, you know, just, just to give a couple of examples of work that I've done in that area, I've worked with statisticians looking at sentencing and looking at, you know, are sentences clustered around a small number of uh, sentence lengths? So if a huge proportion of the people who go to prison all get one year, then that's suggesting that cases that are actually probably quite different are being treated alike by the judiciary. Statistics, you know, lots of really, really useful research in this area, including can we determine cause and effect for an intervention in terms of reducing crime? Can we determine cause and effect for an intervention in terms of helping victims to recover? Also looking at crime trends, different countries and over time, uh, randomized control trials around interventions or around police activities, for example, and indeed looking at disparities in the criminal justice process as well. So I have a number of colleagues who look at to what extent are there disparities in the way that minority ethnic groups are treated by police or in sentencing or in prison and those kinds of things. So there's a huge amount that we can learn about the world uh, through mathematical approaches to crime and to criminal justice. So stay with, say with sentencing, um, you get 
you get thousands of sentences in and and there's crimes matching them and you know about the age of the person like is is it a big pot and you're throwing like is is the ideal thing in 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 the kind of know-it-all way of in what you would wish for that you would get all the sentences that have been sentenced over the last 20 years uh their ages their postcodes or income or family situation uh their um you know all loads of factors and would that what, would you like that to spit out can you throw that into a mathematical model mm. and it would spit out um diagnosis first of all and then recommendations is that how it works yeah i mean f- by way of example consistency is is sentencing consistent is a question you could ask using sentencing data so regularly we hear assertions that sentencing in Ireland is inconsistent. And usually someone asserts that having observed one or otherwise a small number of individual cases where the sentence is either higher than the speaker thinks should be the case, or rather the sentence or sentences are lower than the speaker thinks should be the case. But you know, we simply do not have the data in Ireland to be able to uh, assess or claim with any certainty the level of consistency or inconsistency. So in an ideal scenario, what we would have would be, yeah, a data set which had the sentences, the offenses, the aggravating and mitigating factors, and the and which of these were taken into account by the judge and how much the judge weighted each of these. And indeed, you know, minority ethic or, or the ethnicity of the person, the age, the gender, the, you know, um, uh, social background and so on. And if we had all of that, then we would be able to control for all these variables and, for example, look at whether or not similar cases are being treated similarly. And, you know, right now in Ireland, they're developing sentencing guidelines. There's a new Sentencing Guidelines and Information Committee, and that's existed for a few years now. But unfortunately, they're not in a position to develop sentencing guidelines because they say that they want the guidelines to reflect existing practice and increase consistency therein. But there is just no way of assessing what existing practice is right now because the recording requirements on the judiciary are extremely low and undertaken very inconsistently. And so we just don't have the data to be able to say to what extent sentencing in Ireland is or is not consistent. Uh, could you get it if you read the newspaper, read every newspaper every day and attended every courtroom every day? And, and attended witnessed. every courtroom. Attended every courtroom, you could get it. So, I mean, what they did in England and Wales for a few years, and unfortunately they've stopped this now because it is quite resource intensive, is they did the Crown Court uh, sentencing survey, which the Crown Court is the equivalent of the circuit court there. It's the higher criminal court where, you know, the top approximately 7% of cases go. And every judge was required to fill out for every case a short questionnaire 
you know, what was the cases, circumstances, what was the sentence, what did you take into account and why? And it was a census. So every judge was supposed to do it every time. Now, the actual response rate was not 100%, but it was high enough that we were able to do some really interesting stuff with it. And that's the research I told you about. We were looking at consistency. We were trying to look at whether or not in a different paper, whether sentencing severity increased with the introduction of sentencing guidelines. And then indeed, those colleagues of mine did some work on, you know, whether or not sentencing was consistent in different parts of the country and the extent to which there were disparities depending on the minority ethnic background of the perpetrator. So there's lots and lots that you can do if you have really good sentencing data. But the reality is that Ireland has particularly poor sentencing data, which means that, for example, when a colleague of mine here, Avril Brandon at Maynooth, was trying to look at sentencing disparities based on uh, ethnicity, they actually had to use imprisonment data. So based on the data of the people who went to prison, they could look at whether or not similar cases were treated differently. But then that excludes the vast majority of cases that don't get sentenced to prison. And it's, it's imperfect for other reasons. So I mean, there's always things you can do, but you're very much limited by the data available to you. Uh, And just getting away from the maths for a second, is the reticence around that a fear that uh, individual judges will have their sentencing practice analysed and therefore feel influenced and lack and not have the discretion to do how they feel is appropriate in a given case because they're they're getting close to the, I don't know, the 70th percentile this month or whatever. Is that, is that is there something like psychological going on there? Or what do it's you possible. It's possible. I mean, I suppose a couple of things come in, right? One of which is that this is not resource neutral. You know, if you're asking people to write down what they do and their rationale behind things, like that physically takes time and effort. And, you know, people don't want to have to do more stuff. And then I suppose somewhat separately, There is a broader cultural aversion to transparency, I think, in the Irish public sector compared to some other jurisdictions. Like, I'm not sure that Ireland is low globally on that, but certainly there's EU countries and other, you know, other Western countries that do a lot better in terms of, you know, whether professionals assume or recognize the merits of making everything open and publicly available and transparent. I mean, you know, more directly to your point, like judges are already under a huge amount of scrutiny here, way more so than in other countries I've worked in where individual judges are like known for being harsh or lenient and this kind of thing. And partially, you know, it's small country, you know, Ireland, everyone knows everyone kind of syndrome going on there. But, um, you know, do they think that it could reduce their discretion? I suppose probably because judges absolutely pride themselves on their discretion, their professional judgment, you know, and the reality is it doesn't reduce their discretion um, to make their decision making available. It just allows us to know what they're doing, right? There's, There's no way of using that necessarily to restrict their discretion, or I suppose, you know, you could make an argument that if the data throws up things that are totally whack, then that could result in pressure to change behavior. But, um, you know, we've seen in other countries, the sentencing guidelines and, and things of that nature, it's not obvious that they have a huge amount of impact on professional behavior anyway. So, 
Mm. Uh, moving from sentencing, you talked about uh, cause and effect. Is that in the area of if we have more cops, we have less crime. If we have stronger sentences, it's more of a deterrent. Is that about putting maths to work against me as an individual? What do I feel like? Because I have no negative experience of police. So I feel like the more I see walking around the place, that's got to be good, doesn't it? Because it'll stop a group of undefined ne'er-do-wells from even thinking about it, whatever it is. Or if sentences are longer, my emotional response is, well, that'll show them. It's, it, it must be very hard to absolutely differentiate between correlation and causation, though, in that. Is it like, is there a high burden of proof when it comes to using your maths and stats to come to conclusions? There is. And I suppose what, you know, good um, analysis does is it has a finding and then it weighs that against the strength of the data and the research. So you're absolutely right. I mean, this is more my area of work rather than looking at trends in crime, say. My area of work is looking at what is the impact of the way that we respond to crime, the criminal justice responses, and what uh, responses should we prioritize and should we increase or decrease if the goal is to reduce crime, have a safe society, and meet victims' needs. So, I mean, a lot of the things that It's very counterintuitive. It makes it very difficult in a lot of ways because, for example, we know from decades and decades of research all over the world that increasing sentence severity is not going to deter people from committing crime. Deterrence is about the certainty of being caught, not what will happen if one gets caught. So, you know, periodically you see calls and there was one here a couple of years ago where they were like, you know, someone stabs someone, there's a big panic in the newspapers, that turns into a panic in the Oireachtas. And then people are saying, well, we should increase the sen- the maximum sentence. And, you know, they're talking about increasing the sentence for carrying a knife from three to five years. And, you know, who are these people that they're envisaging who are like, oh, well, three years I could do, no problem. I'll carry a knife for my own protection for three years, but five years, oh, that's a bit steep for me. You know, it's falling into this same, like, this same problem that we see across the social sciences, where if you just assume that everyone is rational all the time, then you're not going to have particularly effective ways of, you know, designing social policy because, Uh, because, you know, if you're a young person and everyone's carrying a knife around you, it is rational to carry a knife because, you know, you are, or at least there is a rationality to it. And, you know, you as a young person have absolutely no sense, probably no knowledge of what the statutory maximum sentence is and no knowledge of what the average sentence is for an offense and no, you know, real ability to discern the likelihood of being caught and the likelihood of if one is caught, what will then happen to you? And I mean, none of us really you know, are, are, are thinking like that, or at least, you know, we don't necessarily have the information to be able to base our decision-making enough on that, that changes in the criminal justice policy will have a significant impact on our decision-making. Mm. So, I mean, would uh, 
creating the possibility of a prison sentence in an offense that does not already have the possibility reduce crime? Probably not, because already there's very few offenses for which you absolutely cannot receive a prison sentence, right? So even, you know, and we see this periodically, is that people can get a prison sentence for a very small amount of drug possession, for example. And, you know, you assume that you're not going to get caught, or you're not bothered whether you get caught or not. So again, it's, it's you know, it, deterrence is about the certainty of being caught, not the consequences of being caught, is what we know from the research. Okay, so how do you use uh, statistics to find out mm. what where people's um, fears are? If they're not, you know, you understand that they're not really particularly bothered about the jump from three to five, or indeed going to jail or not going to jail, but you, you identified that the prospect of getting caught, they obviously consider it an important calculation when deciding whether to commit a crime or not. Yeah, so it, it's quantitative research because what you would look at would be, for example, you know, in a country where there has been an increase in sentences for a specific offense, you can look at whether or not that offense has gone up or down. And obviously, you would have to, you know, um, extrapolate. You know, you've got existing trends, and then you would have to predict, you know, what you a kind of a. Um, an amount of variation that you might expect to see in the absence of a, a new factor, and then whether or not the trend, you know, goes outside of the variation that you might expect to see in the absence of that. So that is all done using quantitative research. Um, and I mean, the other thing you can do is follow, you know, longitudinally people for a long period of time, such as, for example, the Edinburgh Youth Transition Study, which is a world-famous study that followed thousands and thousands of young people in Scotland from birth over, you know, many decades and looked at, you know, who committed offenses and who was caught and what were the implications of being caught. And what that research showed was that, those who were caught and responded to through the adversarial criminal justice system became more likely to commit further offenses than those who, with the same demographics, committed the same offenses but were never caught or who were uh, de-escalated rather than escalated into the system. So again, what that suggests is that there is a very significant risk of actually entrenching criminal behavior by prosecuting people by putting people through the system and by sending people to prison. And, you know, that is research that has been replicated all over the world where the the big randomized control trials and systematic reviews, we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, those studies, which are a study of studies. So take, for example, is police diversion more effective than prosecution? Or in other words, if you get arrested for a low or medium level offense and the police give you a caution or a formal warning, is that more likely to reduce crime than if you are sent to the court and prosecuted and given some form of court sentence, such as a fine and a criminal record or a community sentence and so on? And a systematic review would look at the hundreds and hundreds of studies that have been done on that, exclude the, you you know, up to 80-90% of those with the weakest methodologies and draw its conclusions from the remaining studies with the strong methodologies. And time and again, 
studies like that suggest that diversion reduces crime more than prosecution. Or if you look likewise at those studies which look at the impact of prison sentences versus the impact of community sentences, prison sentences have been shown repeatedly to have a null or negative impact on reoffending. In other words, sending people to prison makes people more likely to commit crime most of the time. Now, that's difficult then because there's more than one reason to send people to prison because you might think that punitive sentencing is important because of retribution, by which I mean the right thing to do is to impose a proportionate amount of harm on someone who has broken the law simply because that is the right and moral thing to do and the consequences are are irrelevant, you know, it doesn't matter, it's the right thing to do so we do it. But you know, and where a totally different argument is we should respond to crime based on what is likely to reduce crime. Because if we can demonstrate, as has been done, that de-escalating people rather than escalating people is more effective, then you might have to um, not send people to prison, even in cases where you're super pissed off at them and you might want to do so for various reasons. But the problem that we see in public attitudes is that people both think that prison effectively imposes a proportionate amount of harm, is retributive, which it definitely is, and think that prison, you know, stops people from reoffending, makes people think twice and so on, which it doesn't. Yeah, it's it it makes sense and uh it also you kind of recognize yourself in the in the dis in when you when you are sorry, I recognize myself in kind of thinking about it because uh you that desire for retribution it's so human and i don't care about your stats you know that kind of impulse uh but also maybe um how we how we think about society and the net benefit to society so basically are we willing to make an emotional sacrifice for the net benefit of society, which we do in other in other aspects of life? We do it with tax, so you know. But it's 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 harder to get around with justice, perhaps because there's a longer there's a long lineage, isn't there, of re- moral retribution? And if you hurt people, you should experience some fraction of what you have inflicted, uh, just so you know, like it's, 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 it's kind of hardwired into parenting as well, you know. Totally. And I mean, you know, the, the, in theory, the point of the retributive system is so that, you know, as to avoid vigilante action and as to avoid, you know, cycles of vengeance, you know, between families and people who know each other and people who would, you know, all escalate violence, you know, as retribution, Instead of that, you have a system which, you know, is is independent, takes the emotion out of it. You know, retribution is different from vengeance. It's it's not punishment inflicted happily or with glee. It's saying this is proportionate. You know, we are imposing the minimum harm necessary for there to have been a proportionate response so that people accept the legitimacy of the state in taking over this. And, you know, the I don't care about your stats, it's, it's an important conversation to have because if you, if you are of the view, and I mean, everyone thinks all of these things simultaneously, we're all ambivalent, you know, we all th- 
periodically think this deserves this and this deserves that. And in addition, we think, you know, I, I would love the society to be safer or, you know, and, and sometimes those are simply contradictory. So like, if you want to have a convert, not you, but if one wants to have a conversation around, you know, simp- it is simply the moral thing to do to impose retribution. Okay. Then the conversation is, well, is it right or wrong? You know, is it, is it right to, you know, harm someone who has harmed someone else? Well, let's take into account the harm that they've done to someone else, but let's take into account the harm that they've experienced, you know, which might contribute to what they've done. And that's one conversation. A totally different conversation, which we can talk about using math, is what will be the consequences for public safety mm. of how the state responds when crime happens. And, you know, unfortunately for people who are real zealots for moralistic approaches, it is just not possible to argue that that has the additional effect of improving public safety and all sorts of things. I know this is really counterintuitive for a lot of people, but, you know, by way of example, uh, scared straight programs are the perhaps super intuitive, right? It's like, Mm. we'll show them, they'll think twice. The research suggests that that results in an increase in crime. So not even just that it doesn't decrease it, but actually actively increases it. Whereas prison education, for example, or diversion, which, you know, we would think, well, why let people off or why, you know, give people extra support? It's like, well, because those are the things that mean that people are more likely to live a crime-free life later. So it depends on your goal as to whether or not you can use math to assess the merits of different ways of achieving that goal. Uh, Tell me about, uh, you mentioned randomized control. Uh, How does that work? How that I presume that's mathematics used to create data that is as what's the word clean as possible is it yes it's about the rigor of the methodology i suppose so in a randomized control trial you are trying to assess whether or not a specific intervention has a causal effect. So does this program reduce crime, for example? And the way of doing that, or the only way of doing that, or the best way of doing that, I suppose, is to be able to control for every other factor. So if, for example, you have a health, you know, a mental health intervention, uh, and, you know, 100 people go on it, and you just don't have another hundred people who didn't go on it to compare them to, then it's very difficult to actually say that if the that the outcomes of those people were caused by the intervention. So, you know, if you are having, say, for example, a new type of sentence or a new community sentence or a diversion program or youth work program, for example, mental health intervention, whatever it is, then what you ideally want to have is a large group of people of whom half, say, are assigned to the intervention and half are not, but also those two groups are similar, right? So you want to compare, you know, 500 21-year-old males with X, Y, and Z to 521-year-old male. You you want the only difference, or ideally the only difference to be that one group received the intervention and the other one didn't. And the closer you can get to that, that gold standard of everything is the same apart from the intervention, then the more certainty 
with more certainty, you can say the intervention caused any difference between the groups. And maybe the research shows that there is no difference between the groups. But if the research shows that, you know, one group commits less crime than the other group, then you need to be able to control for all these other variables to be able to say that the intervention caused that. And the random aspect of it is in the selection of the people uh, in the, from the, the population as a whole. Absolutely. Because, for example, you know, if you have an intervention that is underpinned by cognitive psychology in some way or, or mental health, like if that's just voluntary and other people decline, you know, those two groups aren't necessarily exactly comparable because you might expect that the group that volunteers for an intervention, you know, are already further down the path of considering, well, I need to engage with some stuff in order to, you know, try and, 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 you know, change my behavior in the future. So you also kind of need to control, you need to control for lots and lots of things really in order to have as reliable a methodology as possible. What's your ideal justice system based on the statistics you've looked at insofar as you can? Because obviously, if you were to kind of, uh, I, I, and, and you have free license to be a sci- unscientific and not backed up by stats, but after, uh, what is it, a decade maybe in in working in this area, um, and the stats that you're aware of, and money no object, what kind of uh, conclusions have you drawn uh, based on the fact, have you, like, have you been a victim of crime yourself, by the way? Just so oh, absolutely. Know. I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, when I, when I, I can go into any room of people, undergrads, or I teach criminology in public libraries, there's no room I go into where I don't start with who's committed a crime and more than 90% of people put their hands up and who has been a victim of crime and more than 90% of people put their hands up. So I start from the assumption that everyone effectively has committed a crime and been a victim of a crime. Yeah. So in that, in that system, in this, uh, utopia, uh, with cold hard stats and, and maths, what would you, what would you design? Or how and how different is it to what we have now? Do you think? Like, do we need a revolution? <laughs> I think so. I would design a system that starts with people's needs, that starts with the needs of the victim and the needs of the perpetrator, that recognizes that those are not always, you know, super clear categories, and which explores what those needs are and how they can be met. So I suppose that's a normative stance rather than a statistical one, but it is underpinned by statistics insofar as victims of crime get very, very little from the existing criminal justice system. By way of example, you know, there's research suggesting that going to court is extremely traumatizing, that interactions with the court process are what we call secondary victimization. You're victimized first by the crime and then by your interaction with the system. And just and interrupt is- just interrupt on that. Can you get I presume you can get data from that by something as simple as no shows or people dropping charges mm. or like not carrying on with the case because of the traumatic nature of actually prosecuting the case. Well and there's big surveys of for victims of crime. So I mean the bet the one of the ways that we collect the best criminal justice data is self-report surveys with victims of crime. What crimes have you been a victim of in the last year? And what happened after that? 
And, you know, did you go to the police? If so, what happened? How did you feel about it? And I mean, those are those victimization surveys we use a lot in order to look at trends in crime, because those are actually way more accurate than police recorded statistics in terms of how much crime actually happens and whether it's going up or down in a given area, but also in terms of confidence and experiences. So, I mean, you know, what the research suggests is that there is no bigger Um, or better way to reduce someone's confidence in the criminal justice system than for them to be a victim of crime and call the police. And that's not, you know, that's not an Irish thing. Uh, It happens here, but it happens everywhere because people have absolutely enormous expectations of what criminal justice is going to do for them and are bitterly disappointed by the fact that you know, there is there the criminal justice system is not for victims of crime. It is set up to ask what law was broken, who broke it, and how do we punish them? And the victim is excluded from that system ent- almost entirely, apart from the very odd occasion where they're asked or told or required to do something. And, you know, people generally don't get listened to and so on. So, you know, my ideal justice system starts with the victim's needs, starts with someone who asks them, what their needs are, listens to them, and, you know, that results where needed in referrals to all sorts of services that mostly don't exist. You know, even those police officers who are very good and try to refer victims to all sorts of, you know, non-criminal justice interventions as needed, it's very difficult to do so. And it's very difficult to do so also on the side of perpetrators. So, you know, we need to um, stop seeing people as you are a criminal, you are a victim, but rather you are someone who presents yourself to the criminal justice system as having unmet needs. And what is the best area of social service or of community service that would meet those needs? And you know, I, again, I suppose this is a bit of a normative thing. I would try and take retribution out of it a little bit because I do think that meeting victims' needs and reducing crime in society and making us safer is, is simply more important and a more useful goal than imposing a proportionate amount of harm on people, not least because that probably won't reduce crime, but also because, you know, as I say, there's this huge overlap between offending and victimization. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the people who are in prison right now, if you look at people in the women's prisons in Ireland, for example, the overwhelming majority of them have been victims of extremely serious crime. So, you know, whether or not they're in there for a serious crime or a series of minor crimes, you know, they didn't get the services they needed as victims. We can't pretend that we care about them as victims, even though in theory, that's what the system is for. But as soon as they do something, oh man, you know, then immediately we hate them and exclude them, you know, more than we ever would have helped them as victims of crime. So I really think there should be less, you know, less judgment, ideally, and more reference. Yeah, absolutely. To to the statistics and the research on making society safer. That's very interesting because the design of a justice system which has I don't want to say customers or clients or users but it's people needing it for different reasons like ideally you never want to need it <laughs> apart from maybe getting your bike back from the from the guard you know like you want in an ideal world you don't need a justice system but if you treat it like a social welfare system where you you are a different person. You need it for different things at different times in your life and you have different roles. Um, and as an ethos, it's completely different to what I would have assumed, which is good guys, bad guys, and and agents in between. 
And yeah, absolutely. I mean, we the reality is, you know, in in fiction, the bad guys know that they're bad guys, and it's very clear to everyone who is good and who is bad. In the real world, everyone thinks that what they're doing is justified for some reason or another. So there's very little point, you know, in in stigmatizing people when we know that that's just going to perpetuate the the labels and and the behavior that you're actually trying to prevent in the first place. So I mean, you know, just from some of the research, if you want to reduce, for example, youth violence, then what you need is outreach services to young males, such as street workers that outreach to young men to interrupt um, gang affiliation and mediate violent conflict. You need hospital-based services, working with victims of violence to deal with their trauma and encourage people to abandon, you know, wanting to commit more violence as a result. And, you know, the smart money is in parenting and early childhood, zero to two. Like if you have a bunch of money, there's very few better places you can invest it in than in enriched approaches to childcare and positive parenting, you know, in, in, in mental health services for new parents, community services in schools, school curricula, you know, life skills, cultural change, all of these things, you know, they're not going to reduce crime measurably tomorrow, but the countries that have been successful, looking at Glasgow, for example, Glasgow was once the most violent city in Europe, and now it has had a massive reduction in violence, statistically significantly much higher than the reduction we've seen in other places, because violence is declining, you know, generally violence is declining almost everywhere in the Western world. Can I jump in there? That's, that's something that... Uh... And, we, and we'll finish on this. The perception that crime is getting worse, it like it's based entirely on how much for me, it's based on how much I read about it. I don't and I don't peruse any statistics on crime. But, you know, you ask people, how do they feel? And they think the world's going to hell in a handcart. That's I mean, that's just a comfortable position to adopt once you reach a certain age. Anyway, I think I'd kind of fold my arms at at uh, imaginary dinner parties or lean on the mantelpiece and say, oh, the the world's gone to the dogs. But in general, is violent crime going down? Are we we getting less violent, even though the news seems worse? Absolutely. I mean, what we call the crime drop is one of the most important criminological phenomena of modern times. And what we mean by the crime drop is that across North America, Europe, Australasia, you know, the the what we might broadly call the Western world, where there's been a lot of research on this, and where we're at, you know, similar levels of economic development, many of the most common acquisitive and violent crimes have fallen by half or more since the early to mid-1990s. Now, obviously, you know, COVID brought about, uh, you know, a, a rise in domestic violence because of the circumstances of the time, right? So it's not that there are never increases, but the overall trend in the last 20 to 30 years is down and down significantly. And again, we know this from the National Victimization Surveys, the Crime Survey for England and Wales, the International Crime Victim Survey, which suggests that even in those offense types where the police recorded figures are going up, such as sexual violence, the research overall does not suggest that sexual violence is increasing, but rather our tolerance of it is decreasing. And 
overwhelming majority of sexual violence was not reported or recorded previously. And still a huge amount of it is not reported or recorded. But the increase in reporting and recording is sufficient to look like there is an increase in police recorded data. Okay. But actually the victimization research does not clearly suggest that sexual violence, that, that, that the prevalence is necessarily uh, going up. So, you know, why do people think it is? I mean, almost everyone thinks that crime is going up. Interestingly, the research suggests that people think that crime is going up nationally, but is not going up locally. And that's because they get their information locally from what they see around them. And most places are calm most of the time. And most people are not committing crime or violence most of the time. And you can see that walking around. But then you get your news nationally from your information nationally from newspapers and TV and so on, which tends to um, focus on anomalies at the uh, I- instead of trends, right? So, I mean, for example, in Ireland in 2021, there were 25 murders, and 13 of those were domestic violence murders. So, what do we know from that? We know that that is not a huge number. You know, actually, in Ireland, in most years, more people die in the workplace then die from homicide or from murder. And yet deaths in the workplace don't make the news. So again, you know, the fact the criminal justice system mystifies rather than clarifies what is actually harmful or what, what is most likely to cause the most amount of harm. We also then know, just going back to those murder statistics, the third, the majority were domestic violence. And yet there is way more concern with gangs and all this kind of stuff. And look, I mean, that exists, you know, obviously there's people harming each other because of organized crime and this kind of thing. But the amount of attention that that gets versus the amount of attention, and I mean, in fairness, you know, the amount of attention domestic abuse is receiving is rightly significantly increasing because it's actually you know, a very, very significant proportion of all the violence in society. And yet, you know, for years and years, we've thought that like the gangs are going to come and get you. And that's just, that's just not as likely uh, as people think it is. So, I mean, I think that journalism has to be a bit more responsible by at least contextualizing the individual cases that are presented um with with you know what are the trends in these areas like what are the overall numbers and rather than just like there's been a, a murder and people are like oh my god another one you know that must mean it's going up because it's it i see it all the time and like look even if there had been you know a hundred of something and then you can see two every day you know, there could be 90 the next year and you see almost two every day and it feels like it's prevalent or going up. And actually that's a significant decrease. So it's very difficult, I think, for people to, you know, balance our engagement with and our use of individual cases against our engagement with and interpretation of trends. For people trying to figure out how scared or reassured they should feel about how safe society is, are people trying to calibrate how angry (laughs) they should feel reading about sentences for, you know, a bad person or a young person who's up to no good again. What, What can they do to give them 
a bit more control over it? What in, where can they get information to get a better picture of what is uh, what society is like in terms of the justice system? And not like just so they can just ignore what's going on, but just feel like they're a bit more in charge of the information they receive. Absolutely. So, I mean, the Irish Penal Reform Trust is an excellent NGO based in Ireland that publishes lots of really, really good informative work about the criminal justice system. Uh, I would also point people to the Policed in Ireland podcast by the late Vicky Conway, who did some excellent research and spoke to some really interesting people about policing in Ireland. From other countries, you also have organizations like Community Justice Scotland, um, which is doing some of the excellent work I mentioned before about violence reduction in Glasgow and across Scotland, and really do a lot of really interesting stuff around articulating the need for a slightly different type of justice system. And indeed, there's a very good podcast series called Ear Hustle, which people might like. It's about prisons in the US, but it's about the day-to-day, you know, any, any... Uh, media source which focuses on anomalies is not likely to make you that much better informed. What I would urge people to seek is any information which talks about the general picture in terms of the amount of crime, trends in crime, or overall the impact of criminal justice responses as we have them now and as we could have them. Okay. So maybe wean yourself off true crime uh, and look for more uh, longitudinal. If you want a long series, make it a, lo- a longitudinal study. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, look, serial. or at least, you know, don't take that kind of stuff as education and information because it is likely to focus on things that are totally anomalous. Okay, so this stuff shouldn't be entertaining. <laughs> Well, it can be. And I mean, I mean, maybe I'm just a dork, but I think this, you know, I I think I I show uh, my students, I teach policing. And in the first class, I show them a crime scene. I say, what's this? It's a crime scene. Yeah, well, we're not getting anywhere near that. And then I show them a picture of about a dozen police standing around the Spice Girls concert at uh, Croke Park a few years ago. And I say, look at this, the mundane, the day to day. This is what we're going to be looking at here. So, you know, that's what for me is interesting is what are most people doing? I mean, why are most people not committing crime most of the time? Why do most people who offend regularly not commit crime most of the time? Why do most victims choose not to report their crime? That means they would rather have nothing than anything the criminal justice system has to offer. So, I mean, the big picture, even in terms of what doesn't happen, I think is really, really interesting and a lot more useful to understand than individual anomalous cases my apologies you're not a dork it is entertaining <laughs> i look forward Can you tell my students that that would be really yeah. useful yeah uh you, you need to just prove it by doing your own podcast series obviously that is the hallmark for <laughs> any entertainment uh thank you so much dr ian marder uh from the minutes university school of law and criminology for coming into the function room thank you very much very enjoyable That was Ian Marder, Assistant Professor of Criminology at the School of Law and Criminology at Maynooth University. Thank you very much, Ian. That's the function room for another week. I'm hanging on by my fingertips to my weekly promise. Next week's one is about how an anti-maths elite took over Britain. And it's with 
writer and journalist Simon Cooper. Please keep reviewing and listening and sharing. See you next week. <laughs>